one of the leading figures of our time, is dead. Bernard Baruch, whose favorite office in later years was a park bench, was a quiet philanthropist who gave away the millions he accumulated as a financier and Wall Street broker. He was appointed by President Truman to the Atomic Energy Commission, and at one of the early meetings of the United Nations, he came to make an impassioned plea for all nations to ban nuclear weapons as a means of war. He addressed the Security Council with his now famous statement. We are here to make a choice between the quick and the dead. That is our business. His plan was not adopted, but he was ever the advisor to presidents. President-elect Eisenhower and Prime Minister Churchill met in his New York apartment to renew a wartime friendship. From President Wilson to President Kennedy, he was a frequent caller at the White House where his advice was sought in many areas of international concern. He was honored as few men are in their own lifetimes. A housing development in New York City was named for the man who devoted most of his life to public service. He was a man esteemed by all of his countrymen. Welcome to the show. That little bit you just heard about Baroque, you're thinking, hey, that guy sounds swell into all this charity and stuff. What a guy. Well, got some sad news. That guy is the head of the snake, or at least close to the head. Little known name, Bernard M. Baruch. They are such freaks. B.M.B. I think those two B's back-to-back make their butterfly, and so we got the M in the middle. What a freak show. I hope you're caught on by now that trying to cover this in this country is like trying to get your hands around some jello, an active crime scene in the making. So, what is with Bernard Baruch? Well, an interesting guy. And when I was looking into him and his charitable efforts, what they do is this. It's not a really complicated plan. What they do in order to rob more money, like they're doing right now, I can give you a good example. Once they identify a problem, like the environment, homelessness, any kind of problem, you name the problem, okay? Normally, it's a problem that they have also created, right? So once they move in for the solution to the said problem that they created, it's usually so far out of control that there is no hope of containing this problem, right? Problem's probably never going to get fixed because it is so massive. Well, that's the best way to hide a crime, right, in this big, massive situation. So, yeah, and it keeps going on over and over again. As a matter of fact, right now, California is doing the we're so kind, we're so nice. And always remember my favorite saying, evil has to come package as help, okay? So, Bernard, he was big into the public housing. You can look him up. Bernard put his name on different public housing efforts in New York. And what are they doing now in California? Well, they're worried about the homeless. I'm not going to get into this mess, but it's called Home Key, okay? And what they're saying is that they want to provide homes for the homeless. And um, 
each of these homes are going to cost about, oh, I don't know, seven, $800,000 for, you know, like a little 100 by 100 square foot little dwelling. Um, yeah, California is kind of a mess while I'm on California. You know, they produce 70% of the produce and crops for this entire country, right? Not to mention they're the world's fifth economy. Well, the farmers are going without water. They're not going to have any kind of crops. They screwed up the electricity. So uh, I don't know what this California home key deal is to give shacks to the servants. So when they get rid of everybody that's already living in California by acquiring their property, what they were doing during this home key thing is still going on, is they were they made the state the first right of refusal for all property. So if you have some property you want to sell, I guess how it works out is California can decide if they want to buy it first so they can convert it into housing for the poor. I guess. I'm not going to speculate. So anyway, so let's talk about Bernard and stuff. I think that all roads are going to lead to Germany here. And remember, I said those magic words, I think, okay? Because we have a few things here. They supposedly had the Illuminati, okay? And that was um, referred to a group from May 1776, started in Bavaria, and which is today a part of Germany. The society's goals were to oppose superstition, I don't even know what all this stuff, obscuratism, religious influence over public life, and abuses of state. Okay, so the Illuminati was formed in May of 1776. This dogpile of the country was started in, what was it, July of of 1776. So two months before this country, they cook up the Illuminati. Okay, headquarters in... Ingolstadt, Germany, the founder of that Adam Wishpot guy. So, yeah, uh, but they also ceased operation of the Illuminati in 1785, which would have been close to, what, about 100 years or so after they started. 1776, they closed in 1785. Boy, my mouth is bad. (laughs) That's like about 10 years. So anyway, so allegedly they closed the Illuminati. But the Illuminati, that road leads to Germany, right? Yiddish leads to Germany. So I went around and I looked at some religious sites because the Christians and our our friends at that Islam site, not really happy about the Jews, okay? So I'll highlight some of their comments here for you first and then start to let you know why I'm thinking about Bernard today. Because before we can get to the rest of what I have to talk about, meaning Strategic Air Command, the biggest air, the biggest brainwashing we had outside of Walter Cronkite was a comedian, Johnny Carson. So there's a lot of things I need to get to, but let's get Bernard out of the way first because he actually cooked this stuff up. So he plays a pretty big role here. So let me give you some things that the Christian and Islam people were saying about the Jews. Okay. And remember, if things make sense, they probably make sense for a reason, right? I'm not saying that I am 100% agreeing with everything they say here, but let's take a look at what people are already saying about the Jew problem, okay? 
The Jewish question is not the number of Jews who reside here, nor in the America's jealousy of the Jews' success, certainly not in any objection to the Jews' Mosaic religion. It is in something else, and that something else is the fact of Jewish influence on the life of the country where Jews dwell. In the United States, it is the Jewish influence on American life. So what they're saying here is nobody is saying Jews are not welcome. They're saying that they're questioning the Jewish influence on American life. That the Jews exert an influence, they themselves loudly proclaim. The Jews claim, indeed, that the fundamentals of the United States are Jewish and not Christian, and that the entire history of this country should be rewritten to make proper acknowledgement of the prior glory due to Judah. If the question of influence rested entirely on the Jewish claim, there would be no occasion for doubt. They claim it all. But it is kindness to hold them to the facts. It is also more clearly explanatory of the conditions in our country. If they insist that they gave us our Bible and gave us our God and gave us our religion, as they do over and over again with nauseating throughout all their poematic publications, not a single one of these claims being true, they must not grow impatient and profane while we complete the list of the real influences they have set at work in American life. It is not the Jewish people, but the Jewish idea. And the people only as vehicles of the idea. That is the pointed issue. In this investigation of the Jewish question, it is Jewish influence and the Jewish idea that are being discovered and defined. The Jews are propagandists. They, this was originally their mission. But they were to propagate the central tenet of their religion. This they failed to do. By failing in this, they, according to their own scriptures, failed everywhere. They are now without a mission of blessing. Few of their leaders even claim a spiritual mission. But the mission idea is still within them in a degenerate form. It represents the grossest materialism of the day. It has become a means of sordid acquisition instead of a channel of service. What I've said all along, why are we here? To be in service to the most vulnerable or to grab more crap off of boats from China? So let's get to Bernard here, okay? The guy that nobody really is talking about. And here I'll share with you at the close a more detailed uh, clip about him. So just hang around for the end of that. So here's just a little overview that I picked up off of one of the Christian sites. One, the First World War is to be fought for the purpose of destroying the Tsar in Russia, as promised by Nathan Meyer Rothschild in 1815. Also, let me intersect. World War One and World War Two were likely to destroy evidence of probably our previous civilization or whatever we were because that hits around the 200-year mark. So let me continue on. The Tsar is to 
is to be replaced with communism, which is to be used to attack religions, predominantly Christianity. The differences between the British and German empires are to be used to foment this war. The Second World War is to be used to foment the controversy between fascism and political Zionism and the oppression of Jews in Germany, a linchpin in bringing hatred against the German people. This is designed to destroy fascism, which the Rothschilds created, and increase the power of political Zionism, World War II. The war is also designed to increase the power of communism to the level that has equaled that of united Christendom. And then they're projected ahead. The Third World War is to be played out by stirring up hatred of the Muslim world for the purposes of playing the Islamic world and the political Zionists off against each other. They want to play the Islamic world and the Zionists off against each other. And they are to mutually destroy each other. Whilst this is going on, the remaining nations would be forced to fight themselves into a state of mental, physical, spiritual, and economic exhaustion. Boy, they really love us, don't they? So, yeah, um, keep them fighting, right? Divide and conquer. What do I keep saying? Keep staying on those teams at your own peril. So, here's some other thoughts here. The Jewish question exists wherever Jews appear, says Theodore Herschel, because they bring it with them. It is not their numbers that create the question, for there is in almost every country a larger number of other aliens than of Jews. It is not their much boasted ability, for it is now coming to be understood that give the Jews an equal start and hold them to the rules of the game, and he is not smarter than anyone else. Indeed, it is one great class of Jews. The zeal is quenched when opportunity for intrigue is removed. That's why they're always presenting themselves as being so smart, that they're into transhumans. I'll get back to this later, but how smart are a race of people, or whatever they call themselves, who inflict diseases on themselves? I call that masochism. Eugenics is what they're doing on us, but they're doing it to themselves, too. This is where I've always said that they have to convince us how smart they are, because really, kind of stupid if you ask me. But what do I know, right? Kind of stupid if you ask me. That's what I think about them. So anyway, so um, those Jews that dwell in the United States, American life, yeah, I already talked about that. Um, the Jews claim, indeed, that the fundamentals of the United States are Jewish and not Christian. Yeah, they really do believe that, that they are the chosen ones. Okay, um, propagandists, yeah, and there was an interesting quote at this funeral of this grand rabbi, Simone Ben-Luc. He makes the following revealing statement. 
Thanks to the terrible power of our international banks, we have forced the Christians into war without number. Wars have a special value for Jews, since Christians massacre each other and make more room for us Jews. Wars are the Jews' harvest. The Jew banks grow fat on Christian wars. Over 100 million Christians have been swept off the face of the earth by wars, and the end is not yet. Yeah, so Bernard Baruch, born in 1870. Fortunately, he died in June of 1965. Here we are at that 1965 range again. He's claimed to be an American financier and statesman. Boy, was he ever the hidden Jew behind it all. Why did I start getting into him? Well, um, I don't know. Andy had mentioned his name as far as in relationship to past presidents. And then I was looking into him. So first thing I looked at was, who is the guy, right? Well, some days it's almost like shooting fish in a barrel. Of course, his parents are Ashkenazi Jews, okay? Of course, of course, of course. So then I thought, well, better look a little bit closer. So, according to this historian, for half a century, Bernard Baroque was one of the country's richest and most powerful men, or women, depends on how you look at it. (laughs) Remember, I said I would point it out if I thought they were not transgender, okay? So, Bernie here is definitely a swisher, okay? A great speculator, public official, presidential counselor, political benefactor, and indefangible almoner. His public life provides a clear view of the inner workings of the American political system, and boy, does it ever. Yeah, I had to look up this almoner thing. He's an indefangible almoner. Almoner, A-L-M-O-N-E-R. That is really just rich people talk for some sort of priest, you know, you know, one of those pastors. <laughs> what a surprise, right? After amassing a fortune on the New York Stock Exchange, he impressed President Woodrow Wilson by managing the nation's economic mobilization in World War One as chairman of the War Industries Board. What a guy, what a guy, what a guy. He advised Wilson during the Paris Priest, Priest, <laughs> Peace Conference. He made another fortune in the post-war bull market. He foresaw the Wall Street crash and sold out well in advance. <laughs> Do we really believe he foresaw it? <laughs> or, you know, they, they, they know to pull out, right? So in World War II, he became a close advisor to President Roosevelt on the role of industry in war supply. And he was credited with greatly shortening the production time for tanks and aircrafts. He's probably playing some other role also, but I'm not going to even go there, okay? This guy could, if if you look up his picture, he could look kind of like a lot of them, right? Could look like Wilson, could look like that one or this one. I'm just reading from the official story. Later, he helped to develop rehabilitation programs for injured servicemen. See, isn't this swell? 
he sets people up to go get murdered, injured, and stuff, and then he comes up with services to help them. What an all-around great guy. Too bad most people in this country have brains the size of rabbits, and all they can hear about is the good stuff, right? If this guy is wealthy and did some good stuff, people in this country automatically hero. Give that guy a gold ticker parade. <laughs> In 1946, he was the United States representative to the United... <laughs> it's getting worse, people. It's just getting worse. Okay. Let me back up here. He did start the... Uh, he was involved first with the League of Nations, which morphed into the United Nations. Okay. So he helped... Um, he in 19, He was all about the atomic stuff. In 1946, he was the U.S. representative to the United Nations Atomic Energy Commission. And they'll, they'll talk about that at the end here in this little clip I'll play at the end. Through the Bach Plan for International Control of Atomic Energy was rejected by the Soviet Union. <laughs> okay. So then another one of the religious groups had a quote about when he had been uh, talking in front of Congress. And it went on to say, cross-examined by the Congress inquiry, it was amply proved that Barack's influence over President Wilson made such changes in the administration as to make Barack the most powerful man in the war. And this is where it gets interesting. The Council of National Defense eventually became the merest sideshow. It was not the Council of Americans that ran the war. It was an autocracy headed by a Jew with Jews at every strategic point down the line. In his own evidence, he describes one of his visits to the president in 1915. Mr. Baroque said, Baruch, Baroque, whatever. I should call him Mr. B. <laughs> I thought a war was coming long before it did. I explained it to him as earnestly as I could that I was very deeply concerned about the necessity of the mobilization of the industries of the country. This guy's quite a mind reader, isn't he? He knows the Wall Street's going to break, so he pulls out millions and becomes extremely wealthy, and he's got visions about concerned about the war. What a guy. The president listened very attentively and graciously, as he always does. This would have been, who did I just say it was? Wilson or somebody? Anyway, he says, my attention was brought to the Council of National Defense. The Secretary of War asked me what I thought of it. I said I would like to have something different. I don't know what they're talking about. A council is a council. Mr. Baruch wanted something different. He did get something different. He got the president to change matters so as to make Mr. Baruch the most powerful man in the war. Hmm. Okay. There's no discount of the testimony Baruch gave before Congress. The president of the United States did exactly what Baruch wanted in a thousand ways. And what Baruch apparently wanted was a ruling handed on productive America. And he got it. He got it in a larger way than even Lenin or his successors ever got in Russia. For here in the United States, the people saw nothing but the patriotic element. They did not see the Jewish government looming over them, yet it was there. Remember, I'm reading from this um, Christian page. They're not, not fans of Baruch's, obviously, right? 
The Christians and the Islams, none of them are fans of this guy. So Baruch did things. Before he got through, he was head and center of a system of control such as the United States government never possessed and never will possess until it changes its character as a free government. So, as told by himself, his power, this is Baruch's power, consisted in the following authorities. Number one, authority over the use of capital in the private business of Americans. This authority was nominally under the Capital Issues Committee, the controlling factor of which was another Jew, Eugene Meyer Jr. Okay. Number two, authority over all materials. This, of course, includes everything. Mr. Baroque was an expert in many of the lines of materials involved and had held interest in many of them. In, in lines where Mr. Baroque was not an expert, he, of course, had other experts in charge. Jews. <laughs> this guy's not a fan. The members of that committee were picked out by myself. The industries did not pick them out, he stated. So, yeah, stacking the deck, right? I have called this for a long time a circle jerk. If you notice, all these people interview each other. They talk about each other. They have their own experts. It's just even even the minor creeps on YouTube all interview each other and support each other. And it's called a big circle jerk, right? They go to the same schools. They tell the same lies. So, so let me get back here. Authority over industries. He determined where coal might be shipped, where steel might be sold, where industries might be operated, and where not. He said it is in his recorded testimony that there were 361 or 357 lines of industry under his control in the United States, including practically every raw material in the world. He concluded with he had the final authority. Number four, authority over the cases of men to be called to military service. Baruch virtually pointed out the provost marshal of the United States, the classes of men to be taken into the army. We had to decide virtually the necessity of things, he said. We had to decide that the less essential industries would have to be curbed, and it was from them that the manpower would have to be taken for the army. It was, of course, necessary that some ruling should be made, but why one man? Why always this one man? And they made an editor's note. This extension of the control of industry and material systems in World War II and the development of the methods and powers of Baruch and his political associates in the Western democracies in the later war made an interesting parallel to his disclosures in Congress after the First World War. So he also had number five, authority over the personnel of labor in this country. See, I think the Jews were the first mobsters enforcing things, and then they spun it to the Italians. You know, everything's a big trick, right? Just like Germany. Why do I think Germany? Well, because 
who would be looking in Germany, right? Everybody thinks, oh, Germany, they learned their lesson. Leave the people in Germany alone. Don't talk bad about Germany. Doesn't that kind of sound about talking bad about the Jews? Anyway, let me continue on here. So, yeah, overall the personnel. So that means they probably set up the mobsters and the teamsters. <clears throat> okay. We just, I'm still reading from them here. We decided upon a dilution of men and women labor, which was a thing that had always been fought by the labor unions. We fixed the prices for the total production, not alone for the Army and the Navy, but for the Allies and the civilian population. <laughs> I think you just saying they rigged it all, right? Maybe I'm reading it wrong. And now behold a now, and now behold, as complete an illustration of one part of the protocols as ever could be found in the Gentile government. We will force up wages, which, however, will be of no benefit to the workers, for we will at the same time cause a rise in the prices of necessities <laughs> as the first protocol. You know, this is pretty funny right now, right? Not funny, ha, 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 but... Uh, they're saying that they're giving workers an increase, but they're going to ravage that increase by um, inflation. These guys are really one-trick ponies. Get along, little ponies, get along. But the group now isn't as smart as that group, so watch out when they all start fighting. Just warning you. So, okay, um it was not only during the war, but also after the armistice, that tokens of signal choice were showered on Baruch. He went to the Versailles. Yeah, they were happy because he did all the stuff, right? Mr. Baruch said, whenever he asked my advice, I gave it. I mean, he's talking about the president. I had something to do with the reparation clauses. I was the American commissioner in charge of what they called the economic section. I was a member of the Supreme Economic Council in charge of raw materials. <laughs> I'm continuing on with their quotes. The sequence of expeditions framed and enforced in this direction were inspired by the Jews, assembled in Paris for the purpose of realizing their carefully thought out program, which was succeeding in having substantially executed. The formula into which this policy was thrown by the members of the conference, which countries it affected, and who regarded as fatal in the presence of Eastern Europe, was this. Henceforth, the world will be governed by the Anglo-Saxon peoples, who in their turn are swayed by their Jewish elements. Why was Baroque chosen to be the first dictator of the United States? What has he been, what has he done? That he should have chosen as head of front of government. The first major war in which the United States was involved. At which point did the country turn from debtor nation into the most powerful of all time in military and financial power? And with a minimum of military sacrifice and comparatively tri trifling effort, his Neither his personal nor commercial attainments account for it. What does? Men who can manipulate this political and money power in time of war can do so in time of peace. 
the United States is living under some of the peace manipulation now. The operating group's governments are bankrupt. Only their power of confiscation, confiscation keeps them up. What he's saying here is only their power of confiscation keeps them up. That's why they keep coming up with new things about uh, for the homeless and this and that. They need more money to feed what they're doing. They've already robbed their thousands of dollars, trillions of dollars in debt now. That's why they're so anxious to get these new things passed. It's all riding on that. The United States, commonly referred to as the richest country in the world, is just as poor as a government as is any other. It is in debt and borrowing. That is this country. A lot of work to do. Try to support me if you can. It's awfully tough doing it all on my own. So goodbye for now. Lots to go. I'll get back to Strategic Air Command. and I, I don't know where else, but we're heading in the right direction, and it looks like all roads lead to Germany. So goodbye for now. Be safe out This chapter, The Troubleshooter, the story of Bernard Baruch. The explosion took place in July 1946 at Bikini in the Pacific Ocean. In that mushrooming radioactive cloud, the world faced a magnificent promise and a dreadful threat. A plan for the worldwide control of atomic energy must be adopted by the United Nations. Otherwise, the atom bomb might boomerang and destroy us all. The UN set up a commission to deal with the problem. The American delegate, Bernard Baruch. He wrote and presented the American proposals. A vast responsibility, but for Baruch, great tasks were an old story. For decades, he had been the troubleshooter of presidents. Baruch was born in South Carolina five years after the Civil War. As a child, he showed an uncanny knack for getting to the heart of problems and solving them. The family moved to New York City in 1870 when the boy was 10 years old. Baruch's alma mater was the College of the City of New York. He was a good student. And so fine a boxer that he was advised to turn professional. But his southern-bred mother would not permit it. Instead, in 1890, he went to work in the New York Stock Exchange. Baruch learned quickly, earned the respect of his elders, and became a partner in a brokerage firm. In those days, fortunes could be made or lost overnight. For Baruch, it was the chance to become wealthy. He invested shrewdly. In 1905, when he was 35 years old, Baruch was worth millions of dollars. But mere wealth left you dissatisfied. You searched for a higher goal. In 1917, you found that goal, service to your country. President Woodrow Wilson signed the declaration that brought the United States into the First World War. From a goldfish bowl were drawn the names of the first draftees. An army of millions of men was being formed. They needed uniforms, guns, ships, all the implements of warfare. There was great confusion. You were given the task of organizing American industry for war production. 
you brought industrial confusion to a halt. Did your job so well that Germany later confessed that American production played a major part in her defeat. The peace conference at Versailles. You and Herbert Hoover were there with President Wilson. It was clear to you that Germany couldn't pay the huge war reparations demanded by Britain and France. You urged the delegates to take a more realistic approach. For this, you were denounced by the Allies as pro-German. With President Wilson, you returned to the United States. Disillusioned, but determined to fight by Wilson's side for the League of Nations. The fight was doomed to failure. In 1920, the Republican Party swept back to power. America wanted to forget Europe. Warren Harding became president. Although a lifelong Democrat, Baruch advised the new president on economic matters. Bernard Baruch continued to give counsels on economic affairs when Calvin Coolidge became president. Herbert Hoover succeeded Coolidge as the stock market climbed toward the sky. No one would listen to Baruch's warnings of impending disaster. Suddenly, the country was plunged into depression. In the crisis, troubleshooters were needed to find a way out. Men like Bernard Baruch. 1932, Democratic Party Convention. Baruch and Will Rogers were there. Baruch felt the man strong enough to lead the country out of depression was Franklin Roosevelt. He paid for several of FDR's election campaign broadcasts. Next year, Baruch was present at Roosevelt's inauguration. Let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. The National Recovery Act was launched with stirring big city parades. Baruch's close friend, General Hugh Johnson, was director of the NRA. Baruch himself is a member of Roosevelt's inner circle. When Roosevelt's first cabinet assembled, Baruch could have been among its members. He had been offered the post of Secretary of Treasury and turned it down. Baruch didn't want public office. He wanted only the chance to be of service, without glamour or publicity. Then Franklin Roosevelt took a step that temporarily disrupted their friendship. Baruch disapproved several of the president's early fiscal measures. He was out of favor and for years was rarely called to the White House. But with the Second World War, you went back into harness. A troubleshooter was needed to solve the grave rubber shortage, and Roosevelt chose you for the job. As assistants, you had James Conant of Harvard and Carl Compton of Massachusetts Institute of Technology. The problem, how to provide rubber for the armed forces and for civilian needs out of America's small stockpile. You studied the problem and reported to the White House with recommendations. The recommendations were approved, and you reported to the people. We are recommending as the only means we have been able to see nationwide gasoline rationing. 
but for the purpose of conserving tires, not gas. Our choice is discomfort or defeat. New tires for army trucks and artillery, born of worn-out carcasses, salvage rubber, synthetic rubber, gas rationing. Step by step, the shortage was overcome. Then back to the White House to undertake a new assignment, the manpower shortage. Looking into the problem, you found cause for grave concern. With war production booming and millions of men in service, competition for labor was fierce. You found the solution, a manpower budget. The unnecessary hoarding of workers by manufacturers with cost-plus war contracts should be eliminated. Employers should be limited in the number of workers they could hire, and workers should be limited in their choice of jobs. Labor should be funneled into the war production industries where men were needed desperately. Yet with a manpower budget, civilian production industries would not suffer unduly. There would be enough workers for all. That task finished, you visited the war fronts in 1944. General George Patton gave you good news. German resistance was breaking. They couldn't fight on much longer. But bad news when you returned home. Franklin Roosevelt had reached the limit of his strength. Commander-in-Chief passed away in April 1945, a few weeks before Germany surrendered. It was a staggering loss to the nation and a tremendous personal loss to you. In spite of disagreements, you had admired Franklin Roosevelt. He'd been a great leader. Harry Truman stepped into the vacant place and sent a plane on a mission that would change the course of mankind's destiny. The bomber's target was the Japanese city of Hiroshima. For better or worse, man had unleashed the frightful power of the atom. Pandora's box was opened. The mushrooming cloud ushered in the age of atomic energy. What the bomb could do was written plain on the city below. Death and desolation, a city transformed into a heap of radioactive rubble. It happened once again before Japan surrendered. Now a new White House assignment for Bernard Baruch, to present America's atomic energy control plan to the United Nations. He called for an international authority with powers of inspection and swift punishment for violators of the agreement. The Russian delegate Andrei Gromyko objected. The plan, he said, was not acceptable to the Soviet Union. When the showdown came, the smaller nations wavered. But in the final vote, they stood with the United States. Russia would veto the plan, but the principles of atomic energy control advanced by Baruch had been established. It was the crowning achievement of his eventful life. In 1953, a new president was in the White House. 
Dwight Eisenhower and Baruch renewed an old association when Winston Churchill visited the United States. Baruch's friendship with Churchill dated back to the First World War. His friendship with Eisenhower began in the second. Well past his 80th year, Bernard Baruch was still in harness. He wanted it that way. In service to others, he had found the secret of human happiness. He had given much of his wealth to aid youngsters, much of his strength to aid presidents. Bernard Baruch, America's ace troubleshooter.